Well, amen. Thank you, worship team. Good morning again, everybody. Um, I have to apologize in advance. I'm fighting a cold, so hopefully that's not too much of a distraction uh, over the course of the message here. But uh, like Keith said, if you've been here at all recently, you know that we have been doing a series on our values. Uh, at some point, to be honest, I'm not sure when uh, the leadership of the church, it was well before I was here, uh, decided that we had seven core values that we wanted to uh, have to, to direct us as a church. And uh, we thought that since we're starting a, a new chapter in our church's history in a, in a new location, now would be a good time to be reminded of those values. Uh, speaking of being in a new location, hopefully some of you noticed on the way in that uh, we got the carpet downstairs in, in the, in the first part of uh, our downstairs office area. And uh, so a lot of progress is being made down there. And I think it's going to be a really nice area, uh, kind of similar to our cafe space in the old location, and uh, just for hanging out and socializing. And uh, the Bells have done a tremendous amount of work down there. Um, others have also done a tremendous amount of work as well. But Lori and Steve have really been leading the way there, doing, a, doing an excellent job. And uh, a lot of people came to help us as we moved a lot of the furniture from our old location to the new location yesterday morning. So. Um, definitely check it out. It's, uh, it's looking great. Um, but yeah, so we've been, we've been talking about our values. And uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the value of stewardship. Uh, the week before this week, we talked about prayer. And this week, we are going to... Am I working? There we go. Okay. Talk about biblical teaching. And the first thing I'm going to say here is probably going to seem so obvious that it's hardly worth saying. Um, but when we say that we as a church value biblical teaching, we are saying that we value teaching. We see part of the, the purpose of church as instruction. Uh, we value increasing our knowledge about God. We value having vague ideas about God defined so that they become uh, more, more precise, more clear. Uh, and I, I bring that up because I think that sometimes... Uh, we start to think of church primarily as a place for community. Uh, and it is a place for community. That's one of our values. Um, or maybe primarily an avenue for service, uh, uh, doing good works in the world. And certainly, that is a huge part of what the church is. But I think it's important for us never to lose sight of the fact that part of the reason that we gather is for the purpose of instruction and training and teaching. Um, because what we know is very important when it comes to our worship. Uh, there's a place where uh, Jesus said in the Gospel of John, uh, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kinds of worshipers that the Father seeks. And what I want us to notice there is that little phrase, in spirit and in truth. Uh, <laughs> true worshipers worship in spirit and truth, meaning the kind of worship that pleases God engages both the heart as in the emotions, the spirit, uh, and it also engages the head or intellect, uh, truth. So, yeah, I don't think this is working at all. Are you, are you the one that's been advancing? No? Okay. All right. Well, um, okay. Thanks. Okay. There we go. That felt right. Okay. <laughs> so, 
you can have really lively, spirited, emotional expressions of worship, um, but if that worship is not in response to truth about who God actually is, then that actually can be kind of dangerous, right? Because that's not worship of God, that's, that's actually idolatry, that's, that's worship of something that's not really God. And so even if it's very emotional, very spirited, uh, then that's, that's not good. Uh, on the other hand, you could have uh, accurate knowledge about God and be filled with all sorts of facts about who God is and have that be correct, but if you don't have like a very uh, emotional reaction to that, if it doesn't touch your heart or your will in some way, then that's not good either. So the kind of worship that God is pleased by is, is worship that in, engages both the heart and the head and the intellect, um, worship in spirit and in truth. So all that to say, growing in knowledge is an important part of becoming the kind of true worshipers that Jesus talked about. And so we as a church value teaching. But we don't just value any kind of teaching, right? We value biblical teaching. Uh, if I get up here and I preach a message where I haven't uh, explained or demonstrated or applied anything that's actually from the Bible, from Scripture, then I really haven't done my job. And that's not to say that there's no value in learning stuff that the Bible doesn't talk about. God's made this big, fascinating, beautiful world, and uh, part of the joy of life is exploring it and discovering things about it and learning. That's all great. Uh, there's lots of stuff that the Bible doesn't really talk about that's worth learning about. But if I preach on a Sunday and I just give like a TED talk, um, that's, I haven't fulfilled the purpose of why we gather, part of the purpose of why we gather. Um, me talking on a, on a Sunday morning isn't just supposed to be a motivational speech or history or a science lesson. Um, ultimately, I should be concerned, or whoever is up here preaching, about communicating something from the Bible. Uh, and while it's great if that can involve incorporating a TED Talk or history or science, uh, then, you know, that's, that's a great thing if, if that's possible. But if the heart of the message is not from the Bible, uh, something critical is missing. One of our core values is not being honored. And actually, the, 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 the chance that we are going to be worshiping in truth is lessened. So, um, and the reason for that is because we need to have reliable information about who God is if we're going to worship him in truth. And when it comes to knowing about God, we human beings, left to our own devices, are not real reliable sources of information about God. So we need help, and the Bible is a necessary source of help. Now, since you're here this morning, my guess is that most of you uh, don't need to be convinced that biblical teaching is something to value. Um, there's a good chance one of the reasons you're here is because you value biblical teaching, like Keith said. Um, but I also recognize that there may be some among us who either have never really valued the Bible very much or maybe have valued it in the past but are having doubts about whether or not it really makes sense to value the Bible. Because, let's be honest, it is pretty hard to justify from a rational perspective uh, holding any book in really high authority. Um, so if we're going to value the Bible so highly... Uh, many of us can't help but ask, why? Why should I value the Bible so highly? So what I want to do this morning is I want to address that question, why value the Bible so highly? And after that, I want to talk a little bit about a follow-up question, which is, uh, how, can, how can we value the Bible? 
But before we do that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you uh, for this chance to uh, look more closely at the Bible. Um, Every week we talk about the Bible, uh, but now's a week when we're going to talk about why we talk about the Bible. And I pray, Lord, that it's helpful. Um, I pray that you would help each one of us to uh, value and appreciate um, this amazing book that we uh, that we engage with uh, called the Bible. And uh, we just ask that you be with us as we do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So why value the Bible so highly? Now, the simple answer that you're likely to hear in the church is something that goes like this, because it is the inspired word of God. Um, and I do believe that. I encourage all of us to believe that. Officially, as a church, we believe that. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and righteousness. Now, the thing is, for any of us here right now who are doubting whether or not we should value the Bible, uh, just saying this doesn't really help us, does it? Um, It's an assertion but there's no evidence provided for the assertion, except for the Bible itself. So it's this kind of a circular argument. You know, why should we value the Bible? Well, the Bible says so. Uh, that's, that's not really going to help any of us who are seriously doubting uh, whether or not we should value the Bible. So I want to, well, I want to say that I do believe this, and I think we should believe this, what I want to do this morning is help those of us who might be looking for, for other reasons to value the Bible. And uh, so the first thing I want to say is we should value the Bible highly because it is our only trustworthy connection to the historical Jesus and the teachings of his first followers. Our only trustworthy connection to the historical Jesus and the teachings of his first followers. Now, some of you might object and say, well, hold on here. The Bible isn't my only connection to Jesus. In fact, an even more important connection I have to Jesus is the Holy Spirit who lives in me. And I would not disagree with you, partially because of what the Bible says. Uh, In the Gospel of John, before Jesus is crucified, he is talking to the disciples and he says, The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And in this remarkable passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit living in us. And he makes this very bold statement uh, in 1 Corinthians 2.16. He says, we have the mind of Christ. Wow, living in you, you have the mind of Christ. That is is a remarkable thing. So if I were to uh, say that the Bible, uh, so if you were to say that the Bible is is, uh, not your only connection to Jesus, I would agree with you. But I want us to notice the special word in uh, the uh, point I'm making, which is the historical Jesus. The historical Jesus. What I mean is that if we are going to know what Jesus was like when he walked on the earth, what he said, what he taught, we can't do better than the Bible. There are no historical documents that exist that are as complete and that are as trustworthy and that are written as close to the actual events than the gospel accounts that we have in the Bible. Uh, And although the Holy Spirit does 
live in us, in those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, if we're not careful, we can confuse our voice or the voice of the world with that voice of Jesus that is within us. Uh, and so we need the Bible to help us to discern what actually is the voice of Christ. Because uh, if we're not careful, we really can't drift into believing in a Jesus that is really very different from what the Bible reveals. Uh, I've noticed that there are many people today who tend to think of Jesus as someone who would never ever get angry. You know, or someone who would never utter a harsh word. Someone who would never purposely engage in conflict. Uh, but if that's our picture of Jesus, we need to recognize that that's not the Jesus that's in the Bible. Right? A couple of passages to demonstrate real quick. Uh, John 2, so Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Matthew 23, 33, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. When was the last time you called one of your friends Satan? <laughs> you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, I don't read those examples to suggest that Jesus was nasty and unhinged. He wasn't. You know, he, the idea that Jesus is gracious and loving and all of that is true. Um, but he also, at times, engaged in conflict. He confronted. He could... He could by our perceptions, seem harsh sometimes. And uh, we need to realize that that is the Bible, that, that is the kind of Jesus that the Bible presents. Um, you know, some people, even if you graciously try to offer some sort of correction, will say, well, that's very unchristlike of you to judge me. Um, <clears throat> but is that really not Christ-like? What Christ are we talking about? Right? Is it, is it the Christ that's actually in the pages of scripture, or is it a Christ that's kind of a creation of our own minds, or some sort of projection of our own wish fulfillment that we've made up? So we need to be careful, uh, because without the Bible, it's just really easy for us to drift into believing in a Christ that isn't really Christ, a Christ that is that projection of our desires and feelings. And you know what? Not only is that Christ not true, but the reality is he's not even satisfying. Um, because ultimately, our souls don't yearn for an encounter with ourselves. We yearn for an encounter with the living God. And the living God is a God who surprises us sometimes. He's a God who uh, confuses us sometimes. Right? He's a, he, but he's a God who's real. And we need the Bible in help, to help us have that encounter in order to discern between our own voice, the world's voice, and the voice of the Holy Spirit. Now, in addition to being our only trustworthy connection to the historical Jesus, the Bible is also our only trustworthy connection to the teachings of his first followers. And that's really important because if we're going to identify as Christians, then there should be some consistency between what the first Christians believed and taught and what we believe and teach now. Um, if it's totally different, we, don't, we shouldn't really be calling ourselves Christians. I mean, we might be something entirely different, but we're not Christians, right? So there should be some continuity, uh, some significant continuity between the beginning and now in regards to that core message. Um, 
And the best way that we have to be certain of what those original teachings were is scripture. And the reason I believe that is true is because of the way the Bible was formed. Because of the way the Bible was formed, we can be confident that it is the most reliable way of, um, of discovering the first followers of Jesus, Jesus' teachings. Um, now, some of you might be surprised to hear me say that because there is a very cynical version of how the Bible came to be that gets taught, or um, it's a rumor that goes around a lot these days. Uh, and the rumor goes something like this. This is the cynical story of the Bible. Hundreds of years after Jesus lived, there were lots of equally valid writings circulating among the church, and then a church council, council guided probably by political motivations, picked letters and books to go in the Bible that most suited their interests and threw the other equally valid ones out. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Like, have you guys ever heard a story like that? Um, yeah, I definitely have. Well, there's a different version of the story. There's a different version that I think is much closer to reality. Uh, and <clears throat> what it says is that all of the writings that we have in the Bible now circulated among the early church, and some of them circulated in the very early church. Um, and there was a general consensus in the church as to which writings were authoritative, uh, even though the Bible as we know it today hadn't been compiled in its final form. But as the amount of time between Christ and the original apostles widened, um, more and more teachers came along who started to teach things that were in conflict with the original teachings. And this started to create division. And as these false groups, these heretical groups, came into existence, they started to produce their own writings. And so at some point, it became necessary for the church to be clear about which writings were recognized as authoritative. And the year that this was officially done, um, was around 400 AD, 397 AD, at something called the Synod of Carthage, where it was determined these are the New Testament, what we know as the New Testament now. These are the authoritative books um, in the New Testament. Now, the cynical perspective looks at that date, 397 AD, and it says, are you serious? The New Testament writings weren't officially recognized until like 400 years after Jesus? That's such a long time. But the, the better way of looking at it, the non-cynical view, says that for a very long time, the church didn't need to issue an official statement on which books were authoritative because people considered it obvious. It actually, it wasn't really necessary. It wasn't until later when these heretical movements developed and gained strength um, that the church had to clarify and be clear about saying, okay, this, not that. Uh, according to a New Testament scholar uh, named F.F. F. Bruce, the books that were recognized as Holy Scripture had to meet certain criteria uh, when uh, this, the council was determining what was going to be recognized as the New Testament. And uh, so around 400 AD, uh, when these books were officially recognized as the New Testament, uh, these were some of the, the criteria that Bruce said they needed to, to pass. Uh, each book had to be written or sanctioned by an apostle. And 
when I use that word apostle, I'm talking about either the original 12 or Paul, the apostle. Um, the book had to be old. In 400 AD, it had to be old. Uh, only books that were written close to Christ's death and resurrection were considered for the canon. Now, I recognize close is a little bit of a relative term, uh, but if you were living in the year 400, something written in the year 90 would obviously be uh, much closer to the death and resurrection of Jesus than something written in 200 AD, for example, which there were writings circulating that were that old and, or that new. Uh, the book had to be orthodox, meaning it had to be in agreement with undisputed writings. The book had to have uh, wide acceptance throughout the church. In other words, there had to already be a consensus among most people that the church, in the church that the book was authoritative. And the book had to have been traditionally used in the church. There had to be a history of usage. Like, it couldn't just be, oh, we agree with it. It had to be, actually, there's a history of this book being used. You know, today, you might hear uh, things about, say, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas. And often when you hear, I don't know, something about that on the History Channel or on the front of Time magazine, it's treated like, oh, now finally the truth about Jesus is coming out because, you know, this gospel has been discovered. And, and uh, what we need to realize is that many of those gospels, and in particular those, those gospels I just mentioned, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas, those were around in 397 AD when the canon was recognized. And you know what? They weren't taken seriously. Um, because they didn't meet those criteria. They didn't meet those criteria then, and they definitely don't meet those criteria now. Um, it was actually because of writings like those, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, uh, writings that were developed generations after Jesus, that the church finally needed to say officially, no, those are not the authoritative writings. These are the authoritative writings. So, if you've wondered why should the Bible be such an authority, take a moment to look at that list there. That list that shows the kind of criteria that the writings needed to pass in order to be part of the Bible. And realize we have every reason to think that the books that we have in the New Testament are a reflection of what Jesus' earliest followers believed and taught. And so if we want to know what real Christianity is, we can't do better than searching scripture, right? The Bible is our link to those early teachings and ultimately to Jesus's teachings. So again, that's the first reason to value the Bible highly. The second reason I want to propose to value the Bible highly is because it has self-authenticating power. And hopefully I didn't just come up with that word, self-authenticating. I'm not sure if uh, other people have used it, but um, I'll explain what I mean. What I mean is that when we interact with the Bible, it has this power to persuade us of its authenticity. Um, in other words, it has this power to persuade us that it's not just a human document. It is a human document, meaning there are human authors that wrote the parts of the Bible, and uh, God didn't override their personalities. You can see that, that, that there is human authorship, that different authors have different personalities. You can see that God used their time and their place and their culture as they were writing. But it's not just a human document. There's more, there's more to it. It was inspired by God. 
And the reason I say that is because the Bible is remarkable. It's filled with remarkable ideas and stories and a lot of weird stuff that if you or I were making something up, we would not make up what's in the Bible. And when you take time to study the Bible, you start to see that. Uh, one of the things that's so remarkable about the Bible is that it's a collection of books and letters that was written over the span of 1,500 years, about 1,500 years, and yet there's a unity to it. Um, there's a grand narrative that you see when you start to look at the whole thing, um, and it includes foreshadowing and fulfillment and climax and payoff. There are themes that start in Genesis that resurface again all the way in Revelation, symbols and themes. And, and when you start to see that, you get a sense that even though there were these multiple human authors, there's one divine author that's sort of overseeing and guiding this whole story. And like I said, it has self-authenticating power. So it's something that you start to experience as you experience the Bible. It's not something that just in one moment I can prove. Um, but I want to give at least one example of what I mean, one of my favorites. So in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus dies on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that statement is fascinating for many reasons, right? God himself is feeling abandoned by God, and he's crying out. Like, it blows my mind how profound that is. Um, it's fascinating for many reasons, but one reason that, might, that we might miss is that that phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the start of one of the Psalms in the Old Testament. Now, there are, there are hundreds of Psalms, but one Psalm, Psalm 22, begins with those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if we go to that Psalm, which was written about a thousand years before Jesus was dying on the cross saying those words, and we read through it, we find that the Psalmist was describing something much like when Jesus was on the cross. Uh, this is what it says. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now, if you're familiar with what the gospel accounts say about Jesus' crucifixion, you know that so many of the things described in those words are what happened to Jesus, right? Uh, he was poured out like water when the spear was thrust in his side, right? And it says something like blood and water came out of him. Uh, his bones were all out of joint. His tongue did stick to the roof of, the mouth, of his mouth. The Gospels make it a point that Jesus says, I'm thirsty. Um, people did pierce his hands and his feet. And people cast lots for his clothes. And what's so interesting to me is that Jesus makes reference to this psalm in such a non-obvious way, right? It's not something that you immediately think, oh yeah, Psalm 22. Um, and yet, how remarkable is it that when we find that line in the Psalms, it's in a Psalm that seems to be describing what was going to happen to Jesus a thousand years later. Right? That's amazing. 
So what I'm trying to say is that when we study scripture, we see things like that. Uh, and as we experience them, as we realize how remarkable the Bible is, how parts of it foreshadow other parts and symbols reoccur and it has this narrative coherence to it that somehow arises over a thousand, over a thousand years, it has self-authenticating power to it. And that's one of the reasons that we should value it so highly. And I like, I like recognizing things like that because there's, there's a power to it that's stronger than just saying, well, the Bible says that it's the word of God, right? You know, when you see it in front of you, when you, when you see the, 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 the power of it and, and, and just demonstrate it, that's more persuasive to me at least. <clears throat> okay, so those are some reasons why we should value the Bible highly. And I want to finish by talking very briefly about uh, how to value the Bible. And, uh, you know, last week when we talked about prayer, uh, we talked about how, well, if you really value prayer, you're, you're going to pray, right? Well, similarly, if we really value the Bible, we should read and study it, right? It's a no-brainer. If we actually value it, we're going to do that. But I want to I emphasize that it's important for us to read and study it well, Okay. I, I think that the church in America is kind of hurting for instructions on how to read and study the Bible well. It's not that we don't have resources. We have more resources available these days to study and read the Bible well than any other time in history. It's there. But I haven't really, in my life at least, experienced being in many churches where there's an explanation of like, here's how to read the Bible. Here's how to do it in a way where you're going to get as much out of it as possible. And... Um, we don't have a lot of time to do that this morning, but I just want to talk about it briefly, some, some basic tips for reading the, studying the Bible well. Have you ever noticed uh, that we tend to read the Bible in a way that we wouldn't read anything else? Like, if you were going to read a book or a letter, you usually wouldn't just open it up somewhere in the middle and read it and expect to actually have a good understanding of what you're reading, right? But often we do do that, with individual books and letters in the Bible. I'm not talking about reading the whole Bible. That's a massive project. But I just mean like the individual books and letters in the Bible. We do do that sometimes. We just open up to the middle of it, start reading in the middle. Um, but you would never do that with a fiction book uh, or a letter that a friend sent you or an email. Like imagine you get an email and you just scroll down to the middle and you're like, I'm just going to start reading here. Like, that's weird. Because you know if you pick up a story in the middle or an email in the middle, there's a good chance you're going to miss a significant part of the meaning of it. You might end up being offended by something that if you just read a little earlier, you would realize, oh, that's not what they meant. right? Also, if you're going to read something, you usually know the genre of what you're reading before you read it. Like You usually know if you're reading history, uh, or poetry, or mythology, or law, or allegory, or letter. And you usually know that before you even read the first line. Uh, but when we read the books of the Bible, uh, often we don't make an effort to recognize what genre of, of writing we're actually reading. And that can be a real problem uh, because it can lead us to misinterpret what we're reading. For example, I've noticed, uh, and I, when I say I've noticed these things, I'm not pointing the finger at anyone in our church. I'm just talking about the church at large. Um, I've noticed some people seem to think of the Bible just as a big instruction manual. Uh, and there are parts of the Bible that are like that, right? We call them the genre of law, 
You know, like the Ten Commandments. Don't do this, do this. Like, that's law, that's instruction. But most of the Bible is not in the law genre. Uh, large sections of it are narrative, they're story. And we need to be very careful not to assume when we're reading a story that it's law. Uh, for example, okay, in 2 Kings, there's a story about the prophet Elisha. It's a very strange story. And it says that a crowd of young people were making fun of the prophet Elisha because he was bald. And uh, because of that, Elisha gets really upset and he curses them. And it says some bears come out and eat 42 of the youths that are making fun of Elijah. Uh, now, if we read that story as if it's in the genre of law, then we're going to say, well, I guess God wants us to curse people who make fun of us. Well, I mean, for one thing, that seems to contradict with what Jesus said about loving your enemies and turning the, uh, turning the other cheek and all of that. Um, but first of all, it's a story it's a narrative, right? And there's nothing in that story that proves that God wanted Elisha to do that. There's nothing in it that proves that he didn't want Elisha to do that. But we need to recognize it's narrative, right? It's not law. What we're supposed to draw from that story is different from a command, right? Um, you know, in historical narrative, people are sometimes described as doing the right thing. People are sometimes described as doing the wrong thing. And sometimes people are just described as doing things. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we don't really know whether God was pleased with the actions of the characters in the story or not. And so it's so important that when we read the Bible, we understand what kind of genre we're reading. Uh, because the more we understand about the genre and the context, the less likely we are to misinterpret it. So, here's my encouragement to you to sum up. When you read the Bible on your own, try to make it a point to study whole books. I'm not saying necessarily you have to read the whole book in one sitting, but I'm saying when you're reading the Bible over time, try and say, okay, I'm going to read, you know, Philippians over the next week. Or I'm going to read the whole story in First and Second Kings um, over the span of a month or something like that. Try and take in the whole thing. And maybe once you finish it, go back and read it again. Because you're going to understand the individual parts better if you have an idea of the whole, the whole story that's being communicated and the themes that arise throughout the book or the letter. Um, and then the second thing, before you read, try to find out you know, what genre you're reading. Is this a letter? Is this history? Is it poetry? You know, and keep it in mind as you read. And uh, try to interpret it in light of that. And just to close, because I know I didn't have a lot of time to get into this, um, a book that I would recommend as a resource written for, you know, just ordinary folks. You don't have to, you know, have uh, a seminary degree or anything like that, uh, or be even interested in getting a seminary degree. It's called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Doug Stewart was one of the professors at the seminary I went to. Uh, he's, a, he's a great scholar. Um, and uh, so, yeah, this is a book by some fantastic biblical scholars that's meant to help anyone understand the Bible better and apply it better. Uh, and you can, you can get a used copy on Amazon for one cent. It's definitely worth a cent. Um, so I encourage you to check that out if you feel like you could use some help in that area. So, um, and it's worth pursuing that help because the more we value the Bible, 
uh, and the more that we value it well, the more we'll see and experience the beauty and the power in it. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that uh, we would be a community that values scripture. I pray that we would be a community that reads and interprets it well. I pray that uh, we would always be guided by your Holy Spirit as we read it. Um, and God, I pray that as we read it, you would help us to grow in love for you and for one another uh, and for this world that you have created, Lord. Um, we pray that the, 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 the word of God, the Bible, would be a tool that would help us to be a blessing uh, to the world that you have made, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.